Well, you know how I love titles. The thought was only fleeting. But I did think, given the text in Genesis chapter 3, actually 1 through 3, that we could have called this Labor Day and how we attained it. But I decided to let that one pass. And we're staying with the title, The Bible and the Church. Oh, by the way, I, have, I wanted to look at Stephen's face because, Stephen, I stole your PowerPoint. <laughs> I am so bad at PowerPoint that I found one of his wonderful uh, pieces of work and I took his words off and put mine on it. Bless you for that. I knew that at some point Steve was going to say to himself, that looks familiar. Yes, it does. All right. Now with that confession set aside, I want to tell you about a dog that was uh, the dog of one of my friends growing up. His name was Nicky, which was short for Nicodemus. And uh, Nicky was a, was a cute little kind of mainly white but sort of spotted terrier. And one of my duties in helping my parents with their kind of old uh, primitive fishing resort was to not only clean boats, but to paint them when they needed painted. And, uh, and we used a, a dark green paint. So I was out diligently carrying out my responsibilities, and Nicodemus came from the neighbor's house to visit. And in his zeal and enthusiasm, he kept rubbing up against the fresh green paint of the boat. And, and I, I observed this, and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I can't let this dog go home like this. And so I grabbed a rag and I soaked it, I soaked it in turpentine and I scrubbed the dog. No, nobody ever told me what turpentine does to dogs. I never saw such athletics in a dog. Backflips, all kinds of rolling over. And eventually, this is true, eventually he ran down and jumped in the lake. And, and, and all of that is an illustration of what I would call, and others call, unintended consequences. Well, we've all seen them, good and bad, right? And I think when we come to a Genesis 1 through 3, there are some unintended consequences that we need to come to grips with this morning. It wasn't until, what, in the last hundred years, that really, that the issue of evolution uh, came on the scene and raised its, its head. But ever since that time, uh, Christians have tended to come to these initial chapters in Genesis with evolution in their mind. What they would really like to have found is a scientific explanation of creation that would, science, uh, that would silence evolutionists once and for all. The reality is, that isn't here. Genesis was not written as a scientific explanation. It was written, and you'll appreciate this, it was written so that we would connect some dots. To my knowledge and to my remembrance, I have not read a commentary which has ever dealt with chapter 3 in the light of chapters 1 and 2. And yet, doesn't that stand a reason? Doesn't it stand a reason that when God inspired the writing of this account that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 
would be a foundation, a backdrop against we w- which we would view Genesis chapter 3. So that's my goal. My goal is to connect the dots and somehow to show you that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, when viewed together, help us to understand Genesis chapter 3. Now, I know what you're thinking. What in the world does this have to do with the subject at hand? Well, you'll just have to hold on that one for a minute, and we will get there. The first thing we should observe from uh, Genesis 1 and 2... Ah, I need time out. Okay. There we go. uh, When you look at Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2, you see there are two creation accounts, right? Well, we all buy that. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3... Genesis 2, 4 through verse 25. Two accounts. People have puzzled about that, but the reality is nobody agonizes over the fact that there are four Gospels. And and so what we would expect is like the Gospel accounts, each one of these two accounts comes from a certain perspective with a certain point in view, and together those two accounts are to be seen side by side as preparation for what we find in chapter 3. It lays the foundation for chapter 3. So it gives us a perspective from which to understand and interpret and apply the fall of man as we find it in Genesis chapter 3. So let's let's look at Genesis chapter 1. I have to tell you, for, for years I have felt that we have done an inadequate job of coming to terms with the fall of man in Genesis 3. I have felt like most of what we've done is is too sketchy, too partial, and not very thorough. I've now reached the conclusion that a book should be written from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3. There could be a whole commentary on that. And I have to tell you, the subtleties, I think, that lie in these accounts are huge. And very pertinent to us. And I'll attempt to show that pertinence in a minute. From Genesis chapter 1, you remember, God speaks and he sequentially produces creation, ending in the climax of the creation of man. If anything is clear, we see that God is good based upon his works. Over and over and over in the sequence, we see that God saw what he did and declared it to be good. So would we not assume, from what we know in the New Testament, that a tree is to be judged by its fruits? (laughs) Well, if the fruits are good, folks, then God is good. Seems to me that's very clear. He turns chaos into cosmos, order. And he produces life and that which is good. Secondly, God's word is authoritative and powerful. God speaks things into existence. And he also calls them good. It's his declaration that is powerful. And never do we find an instance where God says something should be, let there be, And there's some kind of an oops, some kind of technical foul-up where it just doesn't happen. Every time it happens, and it happens so that it comes out good. God's word is trustworthy. God is good, 
His word is trustworthy. That's clear, especially in chapter 1. Now, here's another one you're going to have to hang on to your seats for just a minute. God's not in a hurry. The creation of man happens by way of a process. I don't break out in a cold sweat. I did not say a process of millions of years. My way of understanding Genesis is a process that takes seven days. But my point is, God could easily have done a McDonald's kind of creation, right? Or Burger King, have it your way. He could do it fast if he wanted, but he chose not to. And that's not only true in chapter 1, it's true also in chapter 2. God goes through a process to demonstrate that it is not good for man to be alone. I don't know how long it took for all those animals to parade by Adam and for him to name them. But you see, God used that process. I, I, I understand, you know, we're, we're a little dull sometimes, we men. But, but don't you think after a while Adam saw male and female and he thought about the nature of those things and he named them. <laughs> and eventually he looks at himself and says, so where is it? Where is my counterpart? And that realization then brings about God's creating Eve from Adam and providing for his needs. God is not in a hurry. He does things through a process. Now in Genesis chapter 2, you have a different thing. In Genesis chapter 2, you end up with what is good, but you start with what is not good. Now, I know it's only in verse 18, but he says, it is not good for man to be alone. So here's what you see. You see a situation where something is incomplete. Uh, There's no rain. There's no vegetation. There's no one to cultivate. And there's no mate for Adam. That's the not good part. And what you see in chapter 2 is God intervening to create something wonderful where something was lacking. Now look at that. No rain. And so what do you end up with? Four rivers. And and it isn't just four rivers. One river goes into four. But in one of those river valleys, there is what kind of gold? Good gold. Good gold. Can you imagine that? It isn't just water God creates. He creates a river valley laden with gold. That's not bad. Really? From no rain to rivers with gold? I'm for it. No vegetation. And God ends up providing a beautiful garden. No one to cultivate. And God creates Adam. And no helper suitable for Adam. And God creates Eve. I think when uh, Adam woke up from his anesthetic, he said, wow. Not bare minimum government requirements for a helpmate. A wow helpmate. Everything that was lacking, that was a genuine need... God met in a way that was beyond, we might say, expectation. 
That's what we see in Genesis chapter 2. God does not allow legitimate unmet needs to go unmet. Having said that, we now come to the one tree where God does prohibit that. And what we learn from that is, while God richly provides, he also prevents us from access to that which we may desire, but which he knows is not for our good. He knows our needs. So God provides for our needs. He prohibits what is harmful to us. And in the process of that prohibition, he provides us with the occasion to exercise faith or not. Think about that. The real issue in all of this is two things. What is good and what is evil? They don't need, they don't need to start eating on the tree. They've already got a decision. Is this uh, prohibition of this fruit, is that good or evil? Is God good or evil to prohibit it? They must make a choice about good and evil. And they must act on faith. They have never seen death. If you eat of it, you will surely die. They have to trust God that what he says is true, even though they have not seen it. Which, by the way, is consistent with the nature of faith. So, what does that say to us? Well, when we come to Genesis chapter 3, we see Satan challenging the goodness of God. Does not chapters 1 and 2 say to the reader, how could you say that? It's set up so the reader can say, that's nonsense. For God's prohibition. And somehow Eve is convinced by Satan that that is something evil on God's part. And we say, how could you say that? We look at something that is withheld and somehow in Eve's mind that has to be experienced. And yet we realize from chapter 2 that every legitimate need God has met in abundance. I wish I had time to go to uh, Matthew chapter 4, but is that not the same argument that Satan is going to play out? God has withheld in his leading, he has withheld food and water. And Satan's attempt is to get Jesus to act independently of God and his leading, to satisfy himself by meeting a deficiency that was by divine design. God, Satan never changes, neither does God. So what does ancient history have to do with us? (laughs) I know I borrowed Paul's words. Much in every way. This is huge. This account in Genesis 1 through 3 is huge, my friends. Uh, It explains to us Satan's goal and tactics, and they have not changed. It does a, a number of other things, and I don't have those on the PowerPoint, but think about this. Acts chapter 4. When the Peter and, and, and John are, are persecuted and, and beaten and threatened, they go back to the church and they pray. And they start, O God who created the heavens and the earth. See, that account reveals the sovereignty of God. 
And New Testament believers look back to creation and they say, that's the God I serve. And if that's the God I serve, then he is greater than these men. He is greater than what they may do to us. In effect, from this morning's worship time, he will deliver us. So they pray for courage to proclaim the word. When Jesus is asked about divorce, what does he do? He goes back to Genesis 1 through 3, really 1 and 2. And he says, this is how it was originally. So these texts are patterns for us. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, when he talks about marriage, he goes back and he talks about that account. In Genesis chapter 2, where God brings a man and a woman together and unites them. Okay, back to my notes. It explains how and why the church should operate as Paul taught. When you look at how Paul describes the function of the church, he goes back to the fall, and he goes back to creation. And the two primary texts which I have uh, uh, looked at are 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2. And those two texts together deal with two things. One, the order of creation. And secondly, the order of the fall. Who fell first? And those become the basis for Paul's instructions regarding leadership in the church. So what happened in those ancient times has everything to do with us and everything to do with the way in which we go about church. Although I think we would like to push them off to the dusty archives of history. They linger on and their effects do as well. And how the church operates is in effect a memorial of the fall. Because I don't believe God wants us to take the fall lightly. It has everything to do with the gospel we preach and with the way we practice our Christian lives. It explains the reason then or the need for the church's stewardship of the truth. You see, Satan's opposition back then is precisely the same as Satan's opposition today. Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, the temptation of our Lord Jesus. First uh, Timothy chapter 1, the false teaching that is to be corrected at the church at Ephesus. First Timothy chapter 4, the doctrine of demons, which enters into the, the, the doctrinal fabric of the church that needs to be addressed uh, 2 Corinthians talks about Satan blinding people's minds. And he talks in chapter 11 about Satan, uh, messengers of Satan coming as though they were emissaries of light. Satan is as much at work today to undermine his word, and in particular in the church, as well as in the world, that we as a church have a stupendous task to carry out. And that is why Paul says... I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you in case I am delayed to let you know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God because it is the church of the living God, the support and bulwark of the truth. I'm not really too fond of those words. It seems to me that, that the idea is <clears throat> that the church is the foundation. Sometimes you'll see the apostles' doctrine is described as the foundation on which the church is built. The church is both the foundation and the pillars or the columns 
that extend from that foundation to uphold and to display the truth. So the church's job is to preserve the purity of the truth. The church's job is to practice the truth. And the church's job is to proclaim it. So that is a, is a tremendous mission that God has given to us. And it all has to do with the word of God. So you see uh, Paul using uh, Genesis 1 through 3 as this whole backdrop for his teaching on the roles that he has assigned within his church, male and female, whether we embrace that or not. And church practice then reminds us of the fall and its significance. Now, think about this. Think of the implications of the conclusion that the Genesis account, 1 through 3, Go 1 through 11 if you like. If you conclude that this account is not literal, then think of the implications of that. Everything that Jesus and Paul taught, for example, we would have to say was based on falsehood because there was no Adam, there was no Eve, there was no original sin. That's not what Scripture teaches. So the literalness, the actual fact of those events is critical. Sad to say that modern evangelicalism has not done well with what Paul has said are the implications and the fallout. They believe in the fall. They don't believe in the fallout. The church is to operate in a way that acknowledges and responds to the implications of the fall in Genesis 3. Is that not right? That's, that's, that's part of the fabric of who we are. Evangelicalism is said, oh yes, there was a fall. Maybe even it was a literal fall. But somehow the implications of that fall, when it comes to the church, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go that far. And the sad part of that is, that's just the beginning. I read an article in World Magazine that talked about a, a pro- homosexual advocacy group now at Fuller, Sem- uh, Fuller Seminary. And, and I remember the statement that one of those students made, and it was something like this. We don't believe that the Bible is authoritative in matters of sexuality, but group discussion will lead us to much truth. Seminary. An evangelical seminary, and you have folks thinking that the Word of God is not authoritative, but somehow group dynamics will carry the, carry the day? I wish I could tell you that's rare. I heard recently from someone who should know that amongst those colleges and universities around our country that are professedly Christian... Many, perhaps most of them, are caving in to the critical moral and theological issues of our day. That's frightening to me. And it all has to do with one's view of the scriptures and their authority with regard to the word of God. So, what then, to pick on Francis Schaeffer's words, what then should we do? We have to believe not only that the Bible is inspired 
and inerrant and authoritative, but that it's sufficient. See, one of the outs today is to say, well, the Bible is authoritative in what it speaks to, in what it addresses. But the Bible doesn't address, and then they start naming issues. Hey, I grant you, the Bible doesn't tell us how to set broken legs. Okay. But Second Peter chapter 1 makes a huge point of the sufficiency of Scripture, and it says it is God's provision for all of matters that pertain to life and godliness. The Bible is absolutely authoritative and sufficient in areas that pertain to our relationship to God and our spiritual life and our walk in this world. I don't believe that many Christians actually believe that. And that's why they can come to those texts that Paul gives regarding how the church is to function and to say, well, that was then, this is now. And what troubles me about that whole mindset is, my friend, we are reliving Genesis chapter 3 today. God prohibited something from man. And man had a choice to make. I say man in a generic way. I think you understand. Man had a choice to make. Do I accept God's goodness and his authority and submit to his prohibition? Or do I use my judgment as to whether God was right to withhold it or not, and therefore set aside God's command. That not only happened back then, folks, it's happening over and over again today. I know God said this, but... And away we go. And it isn't just on the role of women in the church. It's on many other issues. We have to believe not only in the inerrancy the accuracy and the authority of Scripture, we need to believe it is all sufficient. Secondly, we need strong expository teaching. Hey, since Tom isn't here, I can talk. Isn't, isn't that when you see Tom's passion and you see our commitment as elders? It has been throughout all the years, it has been to the strong systematic exposition of the word. That is a vital part of the church life and of the church upholding the truth. And so we must be committed to that. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it talks about the church being devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's foundational and fundamental. The emphasis on sound theology, that is, being able to connect the dots and put things together so that when we come to difficult text or seemingly contradictory text, we have a frame of reference with which we can address those. But here's the thing that I think is very clear in Scripture. Solid expository preaching alone is not enough. It's a beginning, but it's not the end. It's a means but it's not the goal. The goal, as I understand the scriptures, is a body of believers who embrace that teaching in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, who protect, who practice, and proclaim God's word. A body of believers. And here's the thing that came as a surprise to me. I've always thought of teachers as a sort of a, a, a distinct group Every once in a while, I wistfully think of myself as among them. But as this subset, when I read Hebrews chapter 5, 
what it says is every Christian, if they come to maturity, they ought to be a teacher. Teachers are not there just, they're not even there, take the just out of there. They are not there to do our thinking for us. They are there to help us in our thinking, not only in how we approach the scriptures, but in what we understand from them. In other words, good teachers are examples and models. We're not to come and listen to teaching and saying, okay, well, that's my position is his position. He's done the thinking. I just buy it and go on. That is not where it goes. Good teaching ought to create in people's minds a way of dealing with Scripture so that they become students and teachers. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. On this topic, we have much to say, and it's difficult to explain since you have become sluggish in hearing. For though you should, in fact, be teachers by this time, he's talking to all the believers. I think, by the way, I take that in the sense of apt to teach, as an elder would be qualified. You should be teachers by this time, but you need someone to teach you the beginning elements of God's utterances. You have gone back to needing milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced in the message of righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature whose perceptions are trained by practice. Get this phrase. To discern good and evil. Oh, ho. Remember I talked about process before? I think this is where all of the chickens, as it were, come home to roost. We're back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve desired to know good and evil instantly. Eat a piece of fruit. You got it. It wasn't that God was withholding the knowledge of good and evil It was that God had a better way of men getting it. And the way in which he purposed for men to know good and evil is to know Christ. You know that Jesus, in John chapter 14, is said to be the one who is the truth. He is, in Colossians uh, chapter 2, said to be the depository of wisdom. See if I can find that quickly. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all wealth that comes from full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Men wanted wisdom the quick and easy way, the McDonald's way. Drive through, pick a piece of fruit, move on. God's process was to lead men to Jesus Christ, in whom is all truth, and who is the personification of wisdom, And it's in him and the practice of his word and abiding in his word that leads us to Hebrews 5. And that is that we become teachers. 
and we know how to discern good from evil. It's Christ. It's Christ that Genesis leads us to. It's Christ that Genesis points us to. Just like Genesis 3.15. It's only Christ who fulfills that verse. He will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. Only one fulfills that promise. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the question is this. As we move a little closer to that which is practical, that is, that which is applicational, how do we do it? How do we as a church enhance our love and devotion and commitment to the scriptures to the point where we will be diligent to preserve the purity of the truth in God's word, to practice that truth and to proclaim it? What are some of the ways in which we can do that? Let me suggest a couple. One, we must desire in our hearts to obey it. I have to tell you, whenever I come to the Word of God biased against what it tells me to do, I'll find a way. I'll find a way to mishandle that text. What Jesus is saying in John chapter 7, verse 17, is if you have the will to do my will, then you'll know it. It isn't that the truth is so unobvious It is that we who don't want to do it will find a workaround to it. So we start, I think, in our heart by asking God to give us the desire to obey his word. Second, by the faithful proclamation of the word. I think that's essential to always be setting forth the standard of truth against which we weigh all claims to truth. But I think there's another thing, too, and that is by focusing our meetings and our activities and our gatherings around the Word. I have to confess, personally, sometimes when I find myself with other Christians, I start grousing about politics or, even worse, expressing my opinions on those subjects. But when you read in Scripture... It, it, it paints a different picture. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, and interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. That assumes that people prepare for worship. And that preparation centers on the word of God. Now, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4... Verses 14 through 16, you see another text that really bears on that. As a result, Paul says, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. In other words, falsehood. How do you deal with that? He says, by speaking the truth in love, and you know from other sermons, that literally is by truthing in love. When Christians gather together, they should truth one another. The word of God should be paramount. It should be the subject of their conversation. It should govern what they say. And in doing so, we are to grow up in all aspects into him. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Go one more book and I'll get there. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know that Ephesians chapter 5 has a similar verse. What's it saying? The word of God ought to be the center of what we do. We ought to speak to one another from it. We ought to urge one another from it and hold one another accountable By the way, what I didn't include in my list is discipline. Very clear in the New Testament that disobedience to God's word is taken seriously. Is it not? If we take God's word seriously, then we ought to take disobedience seriously. And that means we must be compliant and obedient, even in those hard times when we must confront and discipline. Now, the last one that I have here is what I call interactive teaching. I have to say to you that I think we're doing a number of things fairly well, at least in our intent. We believe that interactivity happens to some degree within our our worship time, where we can respond to one another. It's a good thing. We have uh, oftentimes interactive teaching after this where people can respond and interact with that. Ministry groups ought to be another element of interactivity. On Wednesday mornings, probably most of you know, Tom moved it to Wednesday. I used to do it on Friday because I knew I'd change anyway by Sunday. <laughs> He's better at it. And, and we, on Wednesday, we have a group of men and a woman who, who gather with us and we talk through the text in terms of its applications and in terms of its interpretation. And that I find, I found personally to be very beneficial, and I know Tom would agree with that too. So there's a kind of interactivity that, that comes to play on that. One of the things that's interesting, this is an, a little bit of an aside, but every, everyone has a different batch or mix of spiritual gifting. And I would suggest to you that our spiritual gifts become the perspective from which we approach scripture and its application. And it's a very good thing to have other people interact with us from other giftings so that we begin to look at the passage from uh, other than just our one telescopic uh, point of view. We begin to see a broader range of that. We're doing some things in the interactive uh, world realm that that I think are good. But I have to say to you, I I don't see, maybe, maybe I'm relieved, but I don't. But, you know, Paul talks about, here's a man speaking, and another man gets a revelation. The first guy sits down, second guy gets up. Can you imagine, can you imagine somebody raising their hand out there and saying, "Um, Bob, I know you prepared this week, but I think God's going to speak through me. Can you, have you ever thought about that? They'd have bodyguards drag them out. But that's what the text says. It says, let a prophet speak and let the others judge. When I read 1 Corinthians 14, I see this interactivity that frankly doesn't characterize a lot of what we do. And I think one of the problems, one of the reasons for that is that our churches are so large, we don't even get to look at people in the eye as the teaching takes place. I mean, if I were sitting back with Ron Cockage, you know what I'd see? 
the back of heads. I look you in the eyes. He can't. So there isn't that sense of community and communion where we interactively take the word of God and, and, and work it over and digest it. And you see, the beauty of that is, if we have a community of teachers, people mature in God's word, then if false teaching comes along, everybody jumps on it. If, if, if the enemy comes along and removes the teacher, you've got lots of people, in a sense, to fill the gap. That's the beauty of interactivity. And I would suggest to you that somehow we need to do uh, better at that. Now, I have a wild and crazy idea. And since Tom isn't here, I can share it with you. And, I, and I'm not saying this is inspired, but when I was in, in seminary, Zane Hodges uh, was teaching a class in the pastoral epistles, and, and he's now with the Lord. Uh, I, I think even he knew that he had some crazy ideas at times, or at least people perceived them as such. One of my favorite expressions that he used to have was, Men, this is one of the wild... Finish it up, Ray. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is one of the wilder roses in my hermeneutical garden. You know what that meant? Everybody thinks I'm nuts. That's what it meant. You know what was interesting about him is he was so unthreatened and so committed to the power of the word of God People didn't want to take him on. He didn't want to fight. He just said, well, this is the way I see it. So he designed what he called the Inquisition. Every two weeks, a class member was assigned the job of taking something he had said in the last two weeks and challenging it in class. The Inquisition. I don't know... <laughs> So I, I, I want to be careful because I don't want Tom to come back and say, we've got this whole new program for you, Tom. It's called the Inquisition. That's, that's, that's not my plan. But, but I would say this. In, in the technological age in which we live, I don't think it would be difficult, and I'm only citing just a hypothetical, theoretical possibility. It, it is not difficult for people sitting in your place, and sometimes some of you, if you're like me, will write down a question that comes to your mind. A question either about something that was said that was unclear or maybe wrong. A question about interpretation or application of that. Just think about the possibility of writing that down, sending an email, uh, and the next week, Tom or whoever it is, starts out by saying, it was a really good question that someone asked last week. Here's the question, and here's the here's my answer to that question. Think of what that would do. It would make participants of us rather than spectators. Now that I think is a goal toward which we should strive. Not not necessarily that model, but somehow people interacting with the truth so that we stimulate one another in a joyful process of taking the word of God and looking at what it means to us. I think at least that's one possibility. So I would simply say this. We as a church have the responsibility, the stewardship of preserving the purity, of practicing the truth and commands, and proclaiming the gospel 
that comes from the Word of God. He's given that to us, to no one else. So the question is, what are you and I going to do about that? Father, we thank you for your Word. Thank you that we now, in the person of the Lord Jesus, have the personification of wisdom and truth. It is through him and through faithful obedience to his word that we become mature, that we become teachers, that we become able to discern good from evil. If there is anyone here this morning, Father, who does not know the Lord Jesus, may they go away knowing that wisdom and truth rest only in him. May they come away from here knowing that he alone is the one who provides forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life, and his presence now and forevermore. May they trust in him, we pray. Amen.